you are about to enjoy a presentation recorded at the 2022 Michigan Conference Camp Meeting held at Cedar Lake, Michigan. We pray that the Lord will bless you as you listen. Dear God, we just want to take a moment tonight to thank you for your boundless blessings to us. I'm reminded of the lesson this week where Joseph, as he was storing up for the, the years of plenty, that the amount of grain that they took in became immeasurable, that there was so much. And we think about the blessings that we've had here at camp meeting. We cannot begin to count them. We cannot begin to count what you've done in our personal lives as well. And as we looked to the, the conclusion of camp meeting that's just a few days away, Lord, I pray that this year will be different. That as we finish here, that camp meeting may not just be the spiritual high for our year, but it'll be the springboard for something much greater. And as we think about what you've done for us, Lord, I ask that you would impress upon us what we can now do for you. We ask that in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. There's a lot to this topic of intimacy and emotional intelligence. And a lot of people are lacking in emotional intelligence actually due to their intimacy behaviors. And we're seeing a major lack of emotional intelligence in our country due to the encouragement of intimacy that actually leads to brain dysfunction, decrease in dopamine receptors, a decrease in the frontal lobe of the brain, a rewiring of the limbic system. And the top leaders of our country repeatedly state that we should love whoever we choose to love. They make these statements without any qualifiers or clarifying aspects. And the reason for this is our country is undergoing a big change in the politics that started the United States of America. And the politics of today is emphasizing sexual freedom. They define it this way. Sexual freedom is the license to lawfully live with and have sex with whom you want, when you want, how you want, without social, political, medical, or cultural persecution. They also go so far as to state this, Sexual freedom lies at the heart of human dignity, equality, and civil liberties embodied in both the U.S. Constitution and the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Which, of course, is a lie. The U.S. Constitution was not founded on sexual freedom at all. It was founded on religious freedom, on freedom of speech, and a few rules of laws that applied equally to everybody. But there's a lot of criticism of that tradition. And we still have laws that are based on the fact that our country was not based on, on sexual freedom. There are still laws against public nudity. There's still laws 
although they're eroding significantly against pedophilia in polygamy in prostitution. There's laws on the books that are now virtually never enforced on sodomy or bestiality. But before this emphasis of sexual freedom in our country that was founded on Protestant principles of the Bible and the Bible only, sex was reserved exclusively for marriage. And it wasn't until a few decades ago, when I was still a young person, that nudity became legal in publications and movies and cable television. And then shortly thereafter came the era of free love, which means cheap sex, casual sex, and the sexual revolution began to take off. As a result of this, we now see a cognitive distortion that's very prominent among, I would say, even the majority of Americans today. That cognitive distortion is called emotional reasoning. Emotional reasoning goes like this. I feel like a dud, therefore I am a dud. I feel overwhelmed and helpless, therefore my problems are impossible to solve. Is that true? Because I feel overwhelmed and helpless? But for an emotional reasoner, that's all the evidence they need. I feel angry at you, and that proves that you've been cruel and insensitive to me. Does that prove that? No, but for an emotional reasoner, that's all the proof they need. I feel angry at you, so you have to have been cruel and insensitive to me. There was a song when I was growing up. I know I'm going to age myself here. You might have heard of it. You light up my life. I used to actually kind of sing along when the radio came on. You light up my life. You give me strength to carry on. You light up my day. What type of song is that? It's a love song. And it seemed like a very innocent love song. Until it came to the end. Does anyone remember how that song ended? It can't be wrong when it feels so right. That's emotional reasoning. It can't be wrong when it feels so right. In contrast, we have a very small part of the Bible that God wrote Himself. What part of the Bible did God write? And where did He write it? and the tables of stone, immutable principles that would last for time and eternity. And he wrote, Thou shalt not commit adultery. He didn't say, Thou shalt not commit adultery unless you feel like it. There was no qualifiers on this one. There should be qualifiers 
on a lot of those other statements that our religious leaders, or I should say political leaders, and even some religious leaders are repeating. But there doesn't need to be qualifiers on this one. And he wouldn't have given us this instruction if he knew that we wouldn't be tempted to possibly do this. He knew the human heart. He knew the limbic system. He knew how he created us with actually dopamine desires, with a libido. And interestingly, this is not just in the Old Testament. It was, of course, quoted in the New Testament, but it was quoted beyond just what God had said here. It also applied in regards to the Mosaic Code. When the Jerusalem Council came about, the big subject was circumcision. Should this continue? What was the answer on that? That was not a test of fellowship anymore. But there were things in the Mosaic Code that were still to be test of fellowship. And there were two areas. Dietary laws, and they also said sexual laws of the Mosaic Code. Laws against sexual immorality. If you want to read those laws, Leviticus 18 was actually read to every man, woman, and child every year on the Day of Atonement. They wanted children to understand that they should not be naked around their uncle or around even relatives, uh, that there was something inherently wrong with that. So that if uncle did try to do something, at least the young girl would have heard that that's wrong. Otherwise, if they don't know it's wrong, it just seems very strange and they, and they uh, can get um, uh, actually manipulated in this way. Interestingly, despite all of the politics out there and Hollywood really promoting sexual freedom and sports heroes, etc., a recent survey, this was done just two years ago, a recent survey of Americans stated that 81% of Americans agree that people should not commit adultery. 88% of those are Christians, but even 71% of agnostics and atheists actually believe that this commandment should be kept, even though a vast majority of them are not keeping it. The New Testament said, for this is the will of God, your what? Sanctification that you should abstain from what? Sexual immorality. Jesus also mentions God's will for us sexually. He said, I say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. So it's not just the behavioral aspects of things. Christ said this actually goes to the thoughts as well. The very thoughts of your heart. So it's actually the intent. We're actually told that we're not judged just on what our behavior has been, 
we're actually judged on what our behavior would be if we could get by with it and no one else would know. Are our hearts pure and clean? What would I do it if I could get by with it? And that's a question for all of us to ask ourselves in this very important area of our life that has so much to do with our emotional health. But God also wanted us to be fruitful and multiply in our marriage relationships. He, he created the intimacy aspect. This is one of the reasons why Lucifer has been attacking it so much. Lucifer, now the devil, is not happy over the fact that angels can't reproduce. They have to be created individually. And so this whole aspect, this was one of the reasons why I'm sure he wasn't part of the inner council. The main reason he wasn't part of divinity. But, you know, Lucifer started the angel rights movement in heaven. And he said, I'm not part of this inner council, and I should be part of the inner council because he's going to want us all involved in angels to be able to help humanity when they're created. And it's not fair that they're going to be able to actually raise children and reproduce. And it's not fair that they're going to have this type of intimacy aspect of things. And so, with the pride first, after pride comes envy, comes jealousy. And so this is why he is very intentional to try to actually have Christ think, maybe I should have had Lucifer there and should have never created this sex stuff. By the way, even the theory of evolution would never have been there had there not been reproduction. <laughs> and by the way, it's kind of amazing. It's amazing, as complex as the human being is, that an intimate couple gets together, they do their intimate act, and without any other involvement, per se, in nine months, a perfect baby is born. There's no surgical intervention. The baby can see, the baby can hear, all the toes, all the arms and legs are working wonderfully. And it's like, how in the world did this happen? No evolution can, an evolutionist can really understand it. They can explain the process, how these two cells came and how the brain is forming and all this embryology, but it's an amazing creation that's taking place every time and before a child is born. God wanted us, a good share of us at least. We know it's His will for some to be single for life. He's made that clear in the Scriptures. But He did want us to marry. And when we start to get to know someone romantically and we start to develop a romantic attraction, there's a chemical in the brain called phenylethylamine. It's a chemical that speeds up the flow of information between nerve cells. Falling in love, according to 
Professor Robert Fryer, as you see. Where's Robert Fryer from, for those in the front? Michigan State University. Falling in love involves phenylethylamine, or PEA, which causes a person to be less likely to be aware of the faults of the other person. PEA gives us that euphoric high, that feel good, everything is wonderful. This person can do no wrong. We've oftentimes seen people who fall in love with somebody and ask, are you blind? Well, yes, they really are blind. And almost no one can tell them at that stage of the game because phenylethylamine is pouring out in large quantities. Who wouldn't get a rush with PEA in your bloodstream? This also explains why many people, quote, need end of quote, to be in love, they are addicted to that rush of chemicals. This chemical high can last from a few months to around how long? Four years. Average is what? 18 months. Pretty typical relationship lengths are about the time the passion starts to wind down after this high wears off. By the way, PEA does not have to go down. 1% of marriages will have PEA for life. I'll show you how to, be, how to get there tonight. Science has shown us how to get there. But most people have lost the PEA that have been married. And as a result, they have those stages of marriage. We have a, a master's program, several master's program at Weimar, but one of our masters is master's in marriage and family therapy where you can become a licensed Um, marriage therapists, and of course, they learn about the stages of marriage. And the first stage is called the what? The honeymoon stage. In the textbook, it's called the euphoric stage. This is the euphoria. What do you think the second stage is called? All right, some say reality. (laughs) In the textbook, it's called the non-euphoria stage. (laughs) And uh, this is when you realize your partner actually can do some wrong things. And there are some things that your partner is doing that actually irritate you that you never noticed before. PEA has started to wear off considerably. Uh, And if you're continuing to have the relationship that led you into the non-euphoria, eventually you go to the third stage. What's the third stage? That's called the despicable stage. (laughs) This is when you can look across the room at your mate and maybe even feelings of hatred start to well up. And... And you're thinking as you're getting so irritated, what was I thinking when I married this individual? And why is he, he or she irritating me so much? What do you think tends to happen around that stage? Divorce. This is why most, a good share of relationships end in divorce. The ones that don't end in divorce, they end up going through to another stage The fourth stage of marriage is called the 
stage of toleration. And often individuals in the third stage will get marital counseling. And so the marital counselor will try to say, are there things you like about your mate? Oh yes, I like this, I like that. Okay, there's things that you don't like and this irritates you. And then that talks to the other mate and they find a way where they can actually have, they'll assign them a book called Boundaries in Marriage and things like this. And then they'll get them into the stage of toleration. How many of you have been to a 50th wedding anniversary celebration? All right, I see a lot of hands go up. I've been to several of them, and so far, every one of them, I hear a speech about how these two are tremendous heroes for putting up with each other <laughs> for all of those years. <laughs> and uh, is that God's ideal for marriage? In fact, the last one I was at, the woman was asked, did you ever think about divorce? And she said, no, but I thought about murder many times. <laughs> so a lot of people trying to avoid these stages decide, let's not get married. Let's cohabitate. How does that work out? There have been studies done on this, lots of studies, by the way. 73% of couples now do this before getting married. And it turns out they're much more likely to get married to the wrong person. In other words, they're poorly matched. Essentially what they're saying is that I don't love you enough to say and make this vow in sickness and in health till death do us part. Not ready for that, but let's live together. Let's try it out. Let's have the intimacy together. And if I like it enough, then maybe I'll commit to you. And so they go into that without that commitment. By the way, are they more likely to find a better match after they do that? Absolutely not. The better matches will rule them out right away. Wait a minute, they're already in this. I'm not going to do that. And so they, they rule out a lot of other opportunities. And studies are actually showing that. And they have lower relationship satisfaction. Even after they get married, they have lower marital satisfaction. And if they do end up getting married, they have less dedication to each other, less commitment, less confidence, and less what? intimate satisfaction. So their intimacy is not as satisfying, and they have significantly more negative communication and significantly higher divorce rates. So these are the, the four stages. Where does this lack of commitment lead to in the sexual freedom? It's actually been studied. A researcher from Cambridge studied it, 86 societies. He looked at sexual laws and success. Increased sexual constraints after studying these 86 societies, and by the way, this was not a religious person that studied this, 
It wasn't anyone who actually necessarily believed in the Ten Commandments. They were just looking at laws and data. Increased sexual constraints, either pre- or post-nuptial, always led to increased what? Flourishing of a culture. Conversely, increased sexual freedom always led to the collapse of a culture. How long did it take? Three generations of sexual freedom. The culture absolutely collapses. We are seeing the collapse of the culture of the United States of America. But no one's telling you the cause. And the cause has already been shown by science. The highest flourishing of the culture, the most powerful combination for a culture to flourish and families to flourish was prenuptial chastity. What does prenuptial chastity mean? No sex before marriage. With absolute monogamy. What does absolute monogamy mean? <laughs> you don't ever go the adultery route. What will happen then? These cultures were rational, and if they retained this combination for at least three generations, they exceeded all other cultures in every area, including literature, art, science, furniture, architecture, engineering, and agriculture. The reason why the United States flourished far more than France was France's revolution was based on sexual freedom. And America's revolution was based on religious freedom. And that religious freedom was largely biblically based with people carrying out and believing that it was God's will for them to have prenuptial chastity and to have absolute monogamy. And this is why we succeeded so greatly. It's not that our ground is any more holier than their ground was. It's not the, the, um, the um, geography. It was this aspect. Out of the 86 cultures that they studied, only three ever attained to this level, however. One of them was the United States, and there were two others. Total sexual freedom... If that was embraced by a culture, that culture collapsed within three generations of the lowest state of flourishing, which Underwood describes as inert and a dead level of conception. This is characterized by people who have little interest in much else other than their own wants and needs. In other words, they become very navally focused, very self-centered, and very angry at others that don't fulfill their self-centered desires. At this level, the culture is usually conquered or taken over by another culture with greater social energy. And sexual freedom, unfortunately, involves what re sexual re researchers call a supernormal stimulus. A supernormal stimulus will lower dopamine receptors in healthy dopamine activity. Here's the definition. A supernormal stimulus or superstimulus is an exaggerated version of a stimulus to which there is an existing response tendency or any stimulus that elicits a response more strongly than the stimulus for which it evolved or was designed. One of the supernormal stimuli that actually does have adverse brain effects if it's used normally 
We mentioned it briefly yesterday, the smartphone. How many features can you do on the smartphone? It's a super normal stimulus. And when you get a Snapchat, you get this dopamine surge, and then you get dopamine receptors starting to be knocked off. And it's one of the reasons why depression and anxiety is going up. But another aspect of supernormal stimuli that are causing so many issues is sexual practices outside of natural PVI. The researchers abbreviated PVI, and PVI is sex by design. Anyone want to guess what PVI stands for? Here it is. We'll put it up on the screen. And they've looked at this in, in comparison with other forms of sex. Empirical research demonstrates that different sexual behaviors differ in many physiological and psychological domains. They're not equal. It's often been asserted that all sexual behaviors are equal. That is totally false. And the science has shown it to be false. These differences are remarkably consistent, revealing an association between specifically penile vaginal intercourse and indices of better physiological and psychological function. Other sexual behaviors, and you can see them listed there. By the way, those other sexual behaviors are lumped into a term, if you look it up, we often think of only one type of sex with this word, but it actually encompasses virtually all the non-PVI types of sex that's called sodomy. Why is it called sodomy? Because Sodom believed in sexual freedom and believed in all of those other forms of climax. And so no matter what they've studied, these are negatively related to indices of physiological and psychological function. In other words, they're going to have adverse psychological and physiological functions. One of the issues with PVI is it produces prolactin. Prolactin is a brain chemical that's actually healthy for us. Dopaminergic pathways underlie processes of romantic attraction. And the studies demonstrate that the prolactin surges that modulate dopaminergic function di differ greatly between sexual behaviors. Now, for those that are into research, Dopamine is surging no matter what the form of sex and no matter what the form of climax. There's a dopamine surge that occurs, but when these big dopamine surges occur, this is the most natural blast of dopamine that a brain can get. I say natural blast, there's unnatural ways of doing this as well, but the natural blast of dopamine, um, that, uh, and the Lord designed this this way, was um, in regards to the, the sexual a climax, and people are searching for that sexual climax, and when their dopamine receptors start to be um, picked off, they actually start to go into more and more kinky aspects of things in order to be able to try to get that surge, and there are some very adverse things that happen. So such surges are strongly associated with women's sexual satisfaction resulting from penile vaginal intercourse, but not other non-PVI ways of experiencing orgasm. By the way, a lot of these studies are done at University of California, San Diego, very secular institution, um, uh, showing this, and, um, and you can look up those. There's, there's clear evidence that what I'm saying is true. PVI is associated with greater resting heart rate variability associated with orgasms through penile vaginal intercourse, but not with orgasms from other sources. 
And so you get healthy vagus nerve activity, blood pressure in response to stress is better, and better relationship satisfaction. Any other forms of sex actually deteriorate relationship satisfaction. Other forms of sex do not enhance relationship satisfaction. This is Stuart Brody, University of California, San Diego. In fact, data shows they worsen relationship satisfaction over time. Both the Old and New Testament condemn Sodom and the sexual practices of Sodom. And sodomy in this country was enforced by law primarily to protect women in relationships, in intimate relationships. That's what it was there for. Of course, the Bible encourages PVI sexual intercourse at the right times after marriage and advises married people to not withhold themselves sexually from each other for long periods of time unless agreed upon by both partners. We'll talk about a good reason why to do that, potentially. And sex frequency has also been studied by the sexual researchers. This is something that Ellen White talks about quite a bit in Adventist Home, page 121 and onward. Some married couples, and of course, it's natural. It's natural when you get married. You love each other. You have the PEA going. You're getting undressed together. You're sleeping in the same bed. But it's very natural during those first three and a half years to be overdoing it in frequency. Something we were warned about. And there are some adverse brain changes that occur and it deteriorates your PEA. It is going to actually cause that PEA to go down and your, your euphoric relationship go to non-euphoria. Engaging in more frequent sex is associated with greater well-being. This is what the cultural sex therapists, you know, I've actually heard them speak. Uh, at, at, at Weimar, I teach a class uh, where we go into um, just the science part. It's three days of going into the science so they can clearly understand this. And then they'll say, particularly in the master's program, but, you know, this sex therapist says that couples should have it as frequently as possible, all of these types of things. And I said, have you ever seen them reference anything scientifically for that? They say, no, they're just pontificating. I said, exactly. They can have the degrees behind their name and pontificate, and some people will believe them because they have the degrees, but they don't have the science. They don't have the science and the data behind this. The media emphasizes and research supposedly supports the more sex you have, the happier you will feel. But interestingly, only in committed marriage relationships does sex have any enhancing effects. This is actually a quote from secular researchers. This casual sex and free love movement was a giant mistake because it doesn't enhance relationships. It actually deteriorates dopamine receptors. We'll talk about some other ways it deteriorates. Across three studies, notice the end number, 30,645. This is a far bigger group than what they do to release pharmaceutical drugs on the market. <laughs> so this is a huge um, meta-analysis study 
We demonstrate that the association between sexual frequency and well-being is best described by a curvilinear as opposed to a linear association where sex is no longer associated with well-being at a frequency of more than what? Once a week. The three adverse changes that occur when you get more frequent or when you're doing non-PVI sex is you will get desensitization, meaning that your pleasure response becomes numbed. Dopamine and dopamine 2 receptors decline in the brain's reward circuitry, so more pleasure leads to less pleasure. Then you become more sensitive, you're more irritable with the usual nuisances of life, and your life revolves around and you think about sex more often. In fact, the more frequently you have sex and the more non-PVI sex you have, the more likely you are to stray from your intimate partner and you're more likely to go into novel aspects. And then the third aspect, potentially the most concerning, is hypofrontality. Alterations in frontal lobe gray matter and white matter correlate with reduced impulse control, weakened ability to foresee consequences, dysfunctional stress circuits occur, and the limbic system easily overrides the frontal lobe in this point, and so the person is no longer able to manage their emotions well, and they're no longer to, able to have comprehensive self-control, simply as a result of their sexual practices. The three variables for intimacy in marriage and enhanced emotional and relational health are a level of commitment prior to the couple's sexual experience, in other words, are you ready to both believe and say until death do us part before you go into sex? The type of sex performed, which is PVI, some people think this is boring, but there's a, over a hundred ways to do it, and it actually has been shown to be very healthy as far as the brain, if you have these other things there. And if the sexual intimacy is not too frequent or too infrequent. When you're monogamous in your marriage or abstinent when single, you actually have higher emotional intelligence by far. If you're married, your marriage is far better. Commitment is the key. And a study out of Utah recently showed that couples who go to the marriage altar never having sex with anyone except the partner they're getting ready to be married to and they haven't even had sex yet until they state the words until death to us part. By the way, what percent of couples are doing that today? They looked at that too. No, you would think it's the, the remainder of those that don't cohabitate. No, even those that married have been having, uh, that don't cohabitate have been having sex often or those type of things. It turns out 5% of couples today are in that category. But those 5% of couples they call divorce proof couples. In other words, these are people that are going to have a very good marriage. They're more satisfied in every aspect of the marriage, including the sexual aspect. And we're told by the Bible, rejoice in the wife of your youth. And that rejoicing goes throughout their marriage relationship. So some of the sexual laws in Leviticus. Notice the laws against nakedness. What I have found out in the mental health arena is when people are taking their clothes off in public or having pictures taken of them, there is mental illness underneath that. 
there is significant mental illness. It's not something natural that mentally healthy people do. And when that nudity is viewed, God actually created us to have desires, that limbic system, and the limbic system can start to kick in, and then you're at risk of actually going into the very thing that God warned us against. So there's laws against incest, not just laws against incest, there's laws against even the viewing of the naked body, um, and uh, uh, you can see how that continues on a lot of different realms. And um, thou shalt not approach a woman to uncover her nakedness, etc. This is something that I think we should resurrect and read in probably all of our churches at least once a year to every man, woman, and child, just like Israel did of old. I think it would protect some of the abuse that's happening. And then you can see the other laws there that make it very clear on what um, uh, God said in regards to not defiling ourselves sexually. And then there's many examples in Scripture of deviations regarding sex. The people of Sodom and Reuben and Judah and Dinah and the Canaanites and Lot's daughters and the Moabites who influenced Israel in the end and caused Baal Peor. Uh, Samson and David and Solomon. Speaking of Solomon, If you read about Solomon's character and personality, how it changed as a result of sexual excess, it's those three things you see on display. The same three things that I talked to you about. A numbed pleasure response, that's why he said all, all is vanity, those types of things. Um, I, you know, you've heard the song, I get no more satisfaction, uh, that sort of thing. Uh, as a result of that, uh, no dopamine. Hypofrontality did occur in Solomon. He became very despicable. He couldn't manage his emotions well. And um, he also had some, uh, the, the hormonal changes. We haven't gone into that. We're not going to do a three-day lecture in one. But uh, we have temple prostitutes and Mary and Pharisees and the Corinthians, uh, etc. But we also have biblical examples of wise sex that are on the screen. But I'd like to actually go into a few cases from the Bible to help illustrate a little bit of the science. The case of Joseph and Potiphar's wife. Although Potiphar's wife was slightly older than Joseph, um, there's evidence there wasn't a large difference in age. And it's clear what was going through her mind in regards to her thoughts first. He's not only the most obedient servant ever, he's also so cheerful and caring, and besides, he's the best-looking guy ever. I will make myself irresistible. And so she read Red Book and found out how to do all the seductive types of things that would be successful. She followed him around the house in her cute, revealing outfits, dropping hints here and there. And the show was on. Then it became a little more forceful when he wasn't voluntarily going for her. And it became a little more urging, a little more coaxing. 
And he had some things to gain by doing it. It wasn't just the sex part that he could gain. Special secret with the boss. More influence and status in this home. More money. And maybe she would even dump her hubby and half of all that wealth would end up being his. What did he have to lose if he did not obey his boss? A lot. His status, his job, his very life could end with capital punishment if he didn't obey what she was now asking him to do. And you know, I, I, I should mention at this point, one of the reasons, there are several reasons why I'm talking about this tonight. One is, we are told that the sin of Laodicea is licentiousness. That's the last church. What happened in Baal Peor before Canaan? We're told that the devil will repeat and he is going to keep Christianity numbed as a result of sexual thoughts and sexual practices. He's going to do exactly the same thing he did at Baal Peor. And if you want to read about that, that's Adventist Home on the chapter on morality. I think it's chapter 55. You can get into all of those aspects. I can tell you that if it wasn't for this, I'm just looking at statistics, but if it, if it, if it wasn't for sexual immorality in our churches and sexual thoughts, this auditorium would be way too small. <laughs> and you would need a lot more seats to be able to fit people that would come into the church. And so it's actually adversely affecting our churches. But a reason why it's closer to home to me is because half of the individuals that come through our depression and anxiety recovery program have brain problems as a result of this issue. Fortunately, there's recovery. There is a, a healing element, but it, it's, it's quite a process. And we have many that come to our program that have been taken advantage of and also those that are perpetrators. And I've noticed those who are taken advantage of often have some feelings of guilt themselves because they go over what happened even years later in their mind. They're going back for what happened years earlier and they realize that they possibly could have done more to prevent it or stop it and to call out the perpetrator immediately. Often these perpetrators are not called out for decades. But they didn't do it because they were afraid. And they were afraid by reasons of Joseph and then they also thought that maybe they would gain something from it as well. And the pro-con list seems too weighted to one side. If Joseph was just looking at the pro-con list... He would have done it. Notice what Ellen White says. This is quite a statement. Patriarchs and Prophets. This temptation by Potiphar's wife, so sudden, so strong, so what? Seductive. How should it be met? I remember talking to some of my college friends about this story, 
And they thought she was probably just some sort of fat slob that he wasn't even attracted to. (laughs) No. (laughs) No. She was an attractive woman and she was making herself as attractive and sexually seductive as she could be. This temptation, so strong, so sudden, how should it be met? Joseph knew well what would be the consequences of resistance. On the one hand were concealment, favor, and rewards. On the other hand, disgrace, imprisonment, perhaps death. His whole future life depended upon the decision of the moment. Would principle triumph? Would Joseph still be true to God? And notice this next phrase, with inexpressible anxiety. Who had the anxiety? Angels looked upon the scene. Angels had studied humanity well. They realized that they had seen situations like this before where they had not seen men be successful in following God's rules of law. And now with this super seductivity plus all of the pro-con list weighted in one way, they thought, I don't think he's going to be able to make it. And they had anxiety on their faces when this was happening. Some people wonder why Joseph said, I can't do this sin against Potiphar. Do you know why? He could have added that. But one of the reasons why I'm sure he didn't is women like this tend to critique their husband around other men that they're interested in. And as they critique the husband and talk about their woes and talk about this and that, he knew, she, he knew that she didn't have that type of respect. So he went one up from Potiphar. How can I do this against what? Against God. We're also told that Joseph would have failed had he not made it clear ahead of time to the household that he was a servant of the Most High God. We should not only live a Christian lifestyle, we should tell people we are Christian. And that we follow not our own rules, but God's rules in our life. And that can help us to be resistant a little more when temptations come our way, because we've already stated our word. Then we have the case of Mary. The feast at Simon's house was quite a lot of drama. Here's what we're told from the book Desire of Ages. Simon had led into sin the woman he now despised. She had been deeply wronged by him. Simon was the uncle of Mary. That Levitical 18 code was broken. And he did pedophile acts with Mary and led her in to her life of sin. Interestingly, Christ healed a pedophile of leprosy a pedophile who was at that point a Pharisee and religious person. 
And Simon was holding a feast to kind of honor Christ. And then his niece comes, Mary, and he starts mind-reading Christ, saying if he really knew about all of her sins, he wouldn't be letting her honor him like this. But actually, Christ knew Simon's heart a lot more than Simon knew Christ's heart. And he told a parable that clearly indicated that he knew. Mary had been looked upon as a great sinner. But Christ, and I'm sorry I typed it in, I didn't copy it in. You can see I typed it in fast today. That should be K-N-E-W. Christ knew the circumstances that shaped her life. That's a direct quote from Desire of Ages, except a misspelling of that one word. She did not misspell it. I did. Christ knew the circumstances that shaped her life. She had heard His strong cries to the Father in her behalf. She knew how offensive is sin to His unsullied purity. And in His strength, she had what? She had overcome. And you know, demons are tightly connected with sexual sins. When we know that we shouldn't be doing it and we continue to do it, we open the avenue to demons. And seven demons were cast out of that woman due to Christ's strong cries on her behalf, realizing that she was led into this as a child. Since that time, we have studies. Childhood sexual abuse increases the risk that the person will undergo depression, anxiety, suicidal ideation, suicide attempts, alcohol dependence, illicit drug dependence, young sexual encounters. By the way, one of the reasons for the young sexual encounters is when children are uncovered, they lose the sanctity of their own body. The body is a sacred creation. And it needs to be covered. But when that uncovering occurs in childhood, it programs the brain that it's not so sacred. And so a lot of the porno stars are abused victims that no longer have this sense. In fact, they'll even be proud that they, it's so easy for them to do this. And they get into young sexual encounters. By age 30, PTSD, decreased self-worth, decreased life satisfaction. They need more doctor visits. They've had far more sex partners than those who've not been abused. And they're far more likely to become a what? They're in poverty and a welfare recipient. By the way, the area that is most strong in all the data, the data is strong on all of this, where it was most strong is actually decreased life satisfaction. There should be a moratorium on childhood sexual abuse. But unfortunately, it is increasing in our country dramatically. And now you will not even be labeled a sexual predator in California if you do it consensually with a 14, 15, 16, or 17-year-old. 
Where is sexual freedom taking us? But after the Gospel was displayed to the woman caught in adultery, he said, neither do I what? Condemn thee. But he told her to do what? Go and sin no more. By the way, it takes 90 days, this is the back to the sex research, 90 days of no pornography, no masturbation, no orgasm. Even if you're in a marriage relationship, it's called a 90-day consecutive sex fast before your frontal lobe starts to come back, before your dopamine receptors start to come back. And the brain starts to repair itself. So for those that have been doing it too frequently or in the wrong way, even a marriage relationship, this is the time when it would be good to agree upon to do a 90-day sex fast. And then after that, go to once a week. We've had so many couples do that and not one has stated it was the wrong thing to do. It enhanced their relationship satisfaction. They started to even get phenylethylamine back. And they started to get that romantic attraction back. God is asking us to take hold of His love and obey Him. And the commandments He gave to us were in love. Finally, the case of David. David shows that it can happen to very good people. Good people can fall with this. And by the way, we're told that the stronger you advance spiritually, the more the devil is going to try to find ways to tempt you because he'll deactivate your influence if you go this way. Not just because others know about it, even if no one ever finds out about it, he'll deactivate your influence because of the brain changes that's going to take place in you. David was popular. He was kind. He was winsome. He was wise. He was courageous. He was free in his emotional expressions in seeking and praising God. But with his success, he began to experience more idleness And he began to look around. And we know what happened. We're told it was the spirit of self-confidence and self-exaltation that prepared the way for David's fall. Flattery and the subtle allurements of power and luxury were not without effect upon him. Intercourse with surrounding nations also exerted an influence for evil because the kings did it so broadly around him. And it's clear that David, even after all of this, did not fully understand the gravity of his sin. He was contaminated by the culture of nations around him. And so Nathan comes to him and with a parable says, you are the man. After his sin was pointed out by Nathan, he had a choice to go into denial to go into defensiveness and say, I'm the king. I can do what I want to. I need to be able to be treated differently than the subjects underneath me. There's nothing wrong with what I did. Many people go into defensiveness and denial. Or he could take responsibility. And he chose the path of redemption, pled for forgiveness, and admitted his complete mess up. And one of the ways we know in which he was thoroughly converted is that he did not blame people who brought this up afterwards and said, hey, I've already repented. Why are you bringing this up again? 
Those who do that are not fully repentant. They're now in the defensiveness mode. And how do we know David repented that thoroughly? Shimei came with him with significant insults as he's leaving the palace to protect the nation from bloodshed as Absalom is taking over in a coup. And Shimei starts talking about what he did with Bathsheba. You deserve everything. And then he starts lying about other things that he did that weren't even true. A lot of lies. And a lot of times when people start blaming you and they put lies in there, we defend ourselves from the lies. And his, the people around him said, Let me, let's silence this guy. This is terrible. He's saying this all in public. This is terrible. And David says to Joab, you leave that man alone. I deserve everything that he's saying. I deserve it all. He saw in his own sin the cause of his trouble. The words of the prophet Micah breathe the spirit that inspired David's heart. When I sin in darkness, the Lord shall be a light unto me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against Him until He plead my cause and execute judgment for me. Patriarchs and Prophets says, and the Lord did not forsake David. This chapter in his experience, when under cruelest wrong and insult, he shows himself to be humble, unselfish, generous, and submissive, is one of the noblest in his whole experience. Never was the ruler of Israel more truly great in the sight of heaven than at this hour of his deepest outward humiliation. God is so willing to forgive. He's so willing for us to have a thorough repentance. We had an individual, you won't know or have any identifying things despite a few things that I'm going to say. We had an individual come through our program that had significant insomnia, obsessive compulsive disorder. She came with a companion, which was her husband. She's telling me all of this, all of her symptoms, and we're going through, trying to find the underlying causes. For every mental illness, there's always causes. And when we get to those root causes, we can totally eradicate and get rid of this. And she didn't tell me anything about this, but since her husband was there in the visit, I asked him, do you have anything to add? He said, yes, I do. He said, she started to get bad after I committed adultery. He was a religion teacher in one of our educational institutions. It had not just happened once, but it had happened several times. And he was still teaching. He said, do your bosses know about this? Well, I haven't mentioned it to them. He said, I could. If they like me, I'd still keep my job. And I realized 
that a big source, because I couldn't figure out, there wasn't, with the severity of the illness, when the severity of the illness outweighs the causes, I realized there's something we're missing, so we probe more. And I realized that I had touched on the area that I couldn't figure out earlier as to why, how bad her mental illness was. And I realized that she couldn't get better unless he decided to get better. So I began to talk with him without her there, and the counselors as well, and he was a little hardened. He didn't like the idea of being fully repentant and in humiliation, undergo the cleansing. And I mentioned to our team, we always have a team that comes with the team counselors, I mentioned to the team, we need to pray for him because if he doesn't come through, we can help her to a large extent with what we're doing here, but we're not going to be able to eradicate it. We'll just be able to help it. Fortunately, with him going through all of those meetings at the end of the program, the Spirit touched his heart. And he came to our chaplain and he said, I want to totally commit to the Lord. I want to repent and I really need to be rebaptized. And in that baptismal tank, I could tell that the repentance was full because he said in that baptismal tank, he said, I don't want anyone to congratulate me. I don't want anyone to think that what I'm doing here is a good thing because I realize my wife's mental illness is because of me. I'm the one that has been causing this distress. And he says, I've been resistant. I want to put my all on the altar of sacrifice. And I want to be washed clean. But please don't congratulate me because I should not be congratulated. That night, she slept like a baby. And her obsessions went away. Her last one quickly is Genesis 19. Jesus condemned Sodom. But he also stated the judgments of Capernaum would even be worse. They had access to the author and displayer of truth and love and rejected him. And he said, had these works of mercy and healing been performed in Sodom and Gomorrah, those cities would have never been destroyed. The sexual freedom crowd that surrounds all of us in our workplaces, in our cities, in our communities, and yes, I should say, even in our churches, needs to experience acts of mercy and healing and God's love in their life. And even they will give up these false ideas that are destroying them and destroying so many others. Sex apart from God's plan for it is self-centered and manipulative. 
Sodom stated their belief in sexual freedom. But Sodom brought lack of freedom and coercion. And it always does this when we're not doing sex God's way. And both parties are actually manipulators. Lot's exercise of his freedom of speech when he made the plea to them, think about what you're doing. Please don't do this. Aren't there alternative ways? Some people you know, are wondering why he offered the daughters. And he was needing time because they were pressing that door in and about ready to cave it in. And he thought that would at least give him some pause. I don't think his daughters would have actually been offered, but it was just, I mean, actually, uh, physically, but it's like, don't go after these guys. Um, you know, what about my daughters? But they were going to actually have him undergo a cruel death because he spoke against their sexual freedom. They were going to tear him limb from limb, and he would have died on the spot had the angels not intervened. By the way, be willing to say the truth in love, even though it might kill you. If you do that, God will intervene on your behalf if necessary. And if it's consensual, yet apart from God's plan, selfishness is at the core, and both parties are often using sex to attempt to manipulate the other party. So initiating the solution is to repent. A sex fast until marriage, or otherwise 90 days if married. The results will be phenomenal on cognitive and emotional health. And it will start enhancing relationships in marriage and family and outside of marriage. Christ said, ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. They answered him, We be Abraham's seed, and were never in bondage to any man. How sayest thou, ye shall be made free? Jesus answered them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Whosoever committeth sin is the what? The servant of sin. They are in slavery. But if the Son therefore shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed. But because I tell you the truth, ye believe me not. The push and promotion of sexual freedom results in slavery. And it's not just sexual slavery. It results in cognitive and emotional instability. And the freedom to speak of the truth and data concerning this in what you've heard tonight is often suppressed significantly in the media today and sometimes ruthlessly attacked. And that results in further innocent victims becoming enslaved. But God asked us to taste and see that the Lord is good. At the beginning of his commandments, he said, I am the Lord that brought you out of the house of bondage. And he is still in the business of doing this today. He says, trust me when I say, do not commit adultery in your behavior or even in your heart. Do not covet your neighbor's wife. I am the Lord that healeth thee. And that positive neuroplasticity can start occurring in the brain just like it did Mary's and just like it did David's. And God can indeed set us free and be ready for the Canaan above.
Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you gave us that seventh commandment in love. We thank you that you gave us Leviticus 18, telling us of all of the variations that you don't want us to do because you love us. You want our brains to stay true, pure. And we pray that we might develop a closeness to you as did Joseph. In a society that promotes with pride sexual freedom, where even a whole month is given in this country to exonerate sexual freedom, may we be servants of you and may we keep your laws and not our own. May we, as your son say, not my will, but thy will be done. And we thank you for the blessings that will follow in its train, and we thank you for the influence that we will become. Lord, thank you for loving us. You realize how great each human being can be if we just tr fully trust in you. And we thank you for the confidence you have in humanity when we do trust in you. And we now pray if there's anyone in their thoughts, there's anyone in their behavior that have not been following your will in any of these commandments, but particularly the seventh commandment. And they want to say, as did David, create in me a clean heart, O God, and a right spirit. Just raise your hand to God and say, God, that's me. Create in me that clean heart, that right spirit. And may I trust you fully in my intimate life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. To listen to more of these presentations, you may visit the audio archives at misda.org slash audio 22 or search for Michigan Conference Camp Meeting wherever you get your podcasts.